Thanks for tuning in to Charlottesville Soundboard. I'm your host, Mary Garner-McGee. Soundboard airs every other Saturday at 6 a.m. on WTJU 91.1 FM and also comes to you as a podcast that belongs to the Virginia Audio Collective. This week, we're continuing some conversations that we've started over the past year. We'll get some updates on the local election season, the comprehensive plan and affordable housing, and the fate of our Confederate monuments. And in the second half of the episode, we give you a sneak peek of a new exhibit opening this week at the Kluge Rue Aboriginal Art Collection. So today I'm joined by Charlotte Renee Woods, and we're going to catch up on a couple ongoing local stories. I want to start with a follow-up to one of our recent episodes on the comprehensive planning process. One thing that's really top of mind in this current draft of the comprehensive plan is housing. So for folks who missed our episode with Erin O'Hare, what impact might the comprehensive plan have on local housing costs? Well, one of the goals in developing, I mean, by, by state law, we have to have a new comprehensive plan every X amount of years. But the goal in the current draft that's being worked on and has been in the process for years is equity and addressing the increasing affordable housing issues that the community has been facing. Because over in recent years, even not so recent years, just the cost to rent or buy in Charlottesville and Prince of Albemarle, it's just, it's skyrocketing. And we're seeing more and more people have to live further and further out who work in here or just may not even want to live here anymore because they're getting priced out. It costs too much. I mean, there's a reason I left New York City to come to Virginia a few years ago. So it's definitely a goal within the redevelopment of the new comprehensive plan and the future land use map and the eventual zoning rewrite, which we are not even there yet. Yeah, so would highly recommend people go check out that recent episode with Erin where she goes a lot more into the difference between zoning and the comprehensive plan and stuff. But thank you for that overview. So what does the current draft of the plan suggest that we change about housing policy? So part of the plan will entail chapters that actually specifically address affordable housing. And so the affordable housing strategy has already been endorsed by city council. And part of it calls for like, you know, the city to invest $10 million annually into affordable housing. And then within the current draft of the comprehensive plan and future land use map, there will be parts of the city that they want to create these different corridors and nodes of like higher density. And it ranges from like softer density, which is like slightly increasing the density in an area, which means that you might see some larger houses be converted into apartments. So you won't, it'll look like a house, but yet there's multiple dwelling units there. Or you might see like a smaller apartment building come into the mix. And then there's areas that obviously will have like higher density where you could see some bigger structures. But this is Charlottesville. People are obsessed with not having super large structures. That's what the current draft calls for is like just having these pockets and nodes where things will be a little bit, you'll allow for more people to live there, which can ultimately over time make everything more attainable and affordable. And you'll have more people being able to live where they work. And it might encourage more bike pedestrian movement and less reliance on vehicles for every little thing. And these these are all goals that the community overall seems to share around equity, affordability, sustainability, and it kind of like it complements the climate action plan that's also being developed. So these are what these plans are entailing, just big picture discussion I'm having right now. I'm not going into the weeds. It's a very long document if you want to go into the weeds. And some of it is still intentionally not very clear because it's it's a guiding document that it's not a mandate saying, oh, you have to do this here. It means that you can do this here if you want to in the future. And here are some ideas for how to do this. I'm going to go back on record as I have before as a huge fan of accessory dwelling units. So people turning their basements into apartments. 
I was really excited to see more widespread in uh, the comprehensive plan. Yeah, it is great. It allows for some affordable housing. And it also is a win for the person who converts their basement because then, you know, they can be a landlord charging a below market easier rate for people, but then it's supplemental income for whoever owns that house. Woo, ADUs. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so you mentioned this, but can you go into a little bit how are housing density and housing prices connected? Yeah. Um, so that was a seemingly simple question that I had and I noticed people have been having. So I tried my best to answer it recently speaking with realtors, developers. A few years ago, I explained how the property assessments work because I was watching a city council meeting where everyone was yelling at the counselors, but they don't, that's not their purview. <laughs> it's actually the city assessor that determines these, but the city assessor can't determine these until they pay attention to the sales that take place each year. And he was saying that you know, even a couple of years ago, he was attributing the high prices to supply and demand issues where more people want, you know, homes and apartments in Charlottesville than are currently available is the argument. And so that allows for the market to go up. And um, when I was speaking with a realtor, he was talking about there's always going to be people who move into an area and maybe the the condo, the apartment, the house is affordable for them, but it's not affordable for the average person, but they're able to give a higher offering price secure that place, then everything around it starts to go up. And then this is, we see this play out in so many neighborhoods over time. So the argument is that when we increase some density and a little bit of new development comes in or a little bit of existing infrastructure is adjusted, it might potentially cause a temporary spike in assessments or sales or or rent prices, but it will eventually start to settle down. And that's the overall goal is to break the cycle and bring the prices down. And how long do people think it might take for, you know, to go over that hump that you mentioned in the article and for prices to come down? I could not get a clear sense. I spoke with a couple of people who were experts in their field, but there's obviously a ton more people to speak with. And so as Aaron takes point on housing and me as the government reporter, I kind of like help bolster that coverage and continue to cover other intersecting areas. We have an abundance of sources to talk through things within this town. Recently, she has an article that just came out that spoke with some nonprofit housing experts who have their whole set of skills and insights to offer. And I know that the consultants in the comprehensive plan are really trying to tap into, you know, residents, experts, other consultants, like what can everyone bring to the table to help get this guiding document right? And again, it is not a mandate. It is just a guiding document for future planning commissioners, city council members, and for the county board of supervisors to make informed decisions. So at this stage in the process, what can people do to get involved, learn more, comment on the draft comprehensive plan as it relates to housing? The latest comment period just recently closed and it had been extended. Um, So the next thing, the next step is the June 29th um, planning commission is having like a work session. The consultants are going to be presenting the feedback that they got there. If you go to Seville Plans Together, they have created a website where if you can go as in the weeds as you want, they upload all the documents, recordings of webinars, feedback, plans, drafts. They have everything on their site so you can really poke around at it. The most recent comment period closed, but there will be more. There, This is a long process. It's going to be a while. Um, so there, there will be other opportunities to provide input and feedback. Okay, so let's switch gears a little bit and catch up on a story that we talked about recently. Who won the local Democratic primary for city council? So Juan Diego Wade topped out with the most votes. He's a school board member, followed by Brian Pinkston, who's been involved with the local Democratic Party. So those two won the Democratic primary. 
So they'll be facing off against incumbent mayor um, and independent candidate Nakia Walker and independent candidate Yaz Washington, who previously was a Democrat. What are some of the meaningful differences like you're seeing or people are commenting on between the independents and the Democratic nominees? Well, with Walker being the incumbent, she has a track record. You can see what she's accomplished or been part of, what she's voted yes to get, yes for or no against. So with the incumbent, you always want to pay attention to what they've accomplished so far. I would say you could apply that also to Wade because he has been a school board member and though that's a different legislative body, you can still get a sense of what his priorities have been. I've spoken with all of the candidates um, a little bit with Nakaya, but I'm going to be speaking with her in the coming months for the voter guide more intensively than I have been so far. But I've spoken with the other people and there's a lot of overlapping goals that everyone has. I just think it'll come down to more nuance on how they achieve those goals, because, you know, some potential candidates or counselors might say, "Okay, well, I like everything that the comprehensive plan is saying. I'm going to go ahead and just vote for it. And some people might say, "Mm, can we add this? Can we take that out? I'm trying to speak more big picture right now because we have several months ahead and these processes are unfolding simultaneously. Yeah, absolutely. So you wrote a little bit about how Juan Diego Wade and Brian Pinkston both raised dollars $69,000 each to fund their campaigns. So maybe I'm a little bit naive, but that seemed like kind of a lot of money for a primary race for city council in a not super large city. Would you say this amount of fundraising is normal? It definitely seems like it stands out when you look at Carl Brown, who was the other Democratic candidate on the ballot who had raised less. When you look at how much Yaz Washington has already raised and uh, Nakia Walker decided to have re-election a little bit later in the game. So um, her fundraising will probably really start kicking off right about now. I can't comment if that's too much or a lot for a local race in a city this size. But it is interesting to note like the average amount given from donors If you go to Virginia Public Access Project, which is where I was getting my information as I was writing that article, obviously you'll see like the regular Democratic donors like Sonia Smith or Michael Bills giving money. And then, you know, then you'll start to see Seminole Trail Properties, LLC. They've given a lot to pretty much every Democratic candidate. And then you'll see like developers giving money too. So that stood out to me because council has to work with developers on proposals. So um, I always pay attention when money is given, like who's giving the money, because sometimes you have to wonder what impact will that have. But I think that's why at the state level, we're seeing a lot of calls for campaign finance reform from a lot of candidates. But that's a whole other can of worms I don't (laughs) want to open right now. And like you said, we will talk so much more in depth about the city council race as we get closer to it in November, now that we know who's going to be on the ballot. And honestly, I have like 10 other stories related to each candidate I want to pursue now. (laughs) Well, we can't wait to read them. (laughs) All right. So the last story for us to discuss today is one we haven't talked about in a little while. The Charlottesville City Council formally resolved to remove Confederate statues in downtown. What led up to this decision? Okay, the abridged version of this five-year saga. Then high school student Zayana Bryant petitioned City Council for removal. A city council that was not composed of anyone who's on it currently, they ended up, they established a commission, the Blue Ribbon Commission, which analyzed, you know, like, what should we be doing with our public spaces? How can we transform them? What's What should probably get gone and what needs recontextualized, et cetera? And then eventually they voted to remove them. But at the time, they were technically in violation of state law, or so it appeared, bum, 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 because we are a Dillon rule state, which means that there's a lot of things that localities have to defer to General Assembly to get permission for. So then lawsuits happened. 
Flash forward, obviously, a white supremacist rally happened. And flash forward some more, a change in state law happened that gives localities permission to decide what to do with their memorials and monuments. And then it gives them, it outlines a process for how to do that, which council is currently utilizing right now. But <laughs> the Supreme Court of Virginia actually found that Charlottesville's specific monuments actually never were under the state law that prohibited their removal because they were erected before a 1996 amendment to the state law took effect for cities versus counties. So that's all of that is a really complicated way of saying this is why even though Charlottesville was so much of the national ringleader for let's have a conversation around our monuments and remove them or, you know, relocate them, we're still one of the last to be able to actually move our monuments. Now that council has formally resolved to remove them, it is utilizing the state process that Albemarle County used last summer when it got rid of Johnny Reb. Even though city council doesn't have to do that, they could just remove them whenever they want, but they're being cautious because, you know, past councils got sued. So I understand. And, you know, from tra for transparency's sake, it definitely gives the community more of a chance to voice like, hey, we want it to go here or we want you to destroy it and melt it down, which is what has been happening. That was an absolutely beautiful summation of a very long, complex story. I'm in awe. So do we have any, like you mentioned this process, do we have any idea of when these statues might actually come down? So July 7th will be the first day that they legally can because of the 30-day process to have noticed that you want to remove them, 30-day process to field offers, which is the stages that we're in right now. So July 7th is the first day they can come down. It doesn't mean that they will come down because council still has to formally decide who's taking them or what council is doing with them and figure out the logistics of, you know, scheduling it, organizing it, how much it'll cost. And there's also the fact that like city council is not scheduled to meet again until July 19th. It doesn't mean that they won't. It just, it means that so much is up in the air right now, but there is a lot of conversation in our community about obviously let's get these moved before the anniversary of, you know, August 11th and 12th, just to be safe because it, it can be viewed as a public safety concern, which is the argument that um, Richmond Mayor LeVar Stoney used when he had their slate of Confederate statues relocated last summer. So now that the statues are being taken down, are you hearing from local community leaders in the efforts to continue to make our public spaces more inclusive? You know, one thing we hear a lot is like statues are important, but they're just the beginning of the conversation. What's next? I think this also ties back into where we are with our comprehensive plan process and affordable housing strategy. Like the statues are seen as symbolism for, okay, well, let's not continue to venerate icons from this lost cause for a war that was built on owning people and enslaving people. And so moving forward, I think that's just a, you know, getting rid of the statues is like a symbolic gesture, but it is not this, you know, it's not the same as actually taking equitable lenses and infusing that into local and state policy, which we're seeing a lot of in recent years, a lot of attempts to be more equitable, be more fair, and also reconcile right now. We're also realizing like how much of U.S. history has been just glossed over and has been really overlooking the contributions of black and brown people in our society. And that's something that we're seeing play out as well. One great example that we'll have, you know, conversations here locally, but it is a state thing is marijuana was legalized. It will, well, there's phases and steps to fully legalizing it and setting up that market. But in the meantime, starting on July 1st, um, 
it will be legal to possess a certain amount and to grow some plants at home, which we know that in the war on drugs over, you know, X amount of years, we've seen disproportionate law enforcement of black and brown people in possession of the same thing that white people are using. Um, so that is something that I know, you know, state lawmakers are really proud of. Um, and we definitely have some local Charlottesville residents that contribute to that in our very own General Assembly. And abolition of the death penalty too a big racial justice yeah. issue in this uh, General yes. Assembly term. I feel like Virginia Democrats at the moment are really patting themselves on the back for the things they've gotten done in the last few years. And a lot of that, that's from voters. We put people into office. So I think everyone who is appreciating these changes can feel a sense of pride in contributing to it as well. Well, do you have anything else you want to talk about or mention? Not at the moment. All right. I am about to take my annual couple of days off. I seem to take early July each year where the fear of missing out hits so hard because I'm like, oh, I'm trying to enjoy some time off. But then I'm thinking, oh, no, what am I missing? I need to be there. I need to be working. So I'm, gonna, I'm about to attempt to go into a short vacation mode. All right. Everybody in Charlottesville, do you hear that? You need to hold off on making news for a week. <laughs> <laughs> this is like every Charlotte deserves a struggle. break. <laughs> Oh, man, this is this is the life of being in the news. <laughs> Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Charlotte Renee Woods is a reporter for Charlottesville Tomorrow. You're listening to Charlottesville Soundboard here on WTJU 91.1 FM and the Virginia Audio Collective. Both are a service of the University of Virginia. However, opinions expressed on this show are not the positions of the university. WTJU is supported by the Southern Environmental Law Center, protecting Virginia's air, water, and natural treasures, and leading the way towards a healthy environment for all. Learn more at southernenvironment.org. In our next segment, we're taking you to the Kluge Roo Aboriginal Art Collection. So we're walking through some papered over doors into a very secretive room here. Tell me what we're looking at. Well, you're looking at a half-hung exhibition. <laughs> that's an empty wall, that's an empty wall, but they will be full very, very soon. Um, yeah, this is a really exciting exhibition for us. It's called Iriticha Kuari Jungu, which means past and present together. And the exhibition celebrates 50 years of Papanya Tula artists, which was the very first... And I guess it's the artists' cooperative or artists' company uh, of Aboriginal artists working in the, the central desert of Australia. It's formed at a place called Papanya. It's a government settlement. They're bringing together desert people from all these different language groups, about six different language groups. And for some of them, it's the first time they've ever had to live in close contact with white Australians. But it's also the first time for any of these people that they're forced to live in such close proximity to people from other Aboriginal language groups. And so you get this bubbling kind of cosmopolitan place with enormous amounts of social dysfunction where, you know, I think painting gave them this sense of legitimacy, this sense of authority. It was about expressing who they were amidst this really complicated melange of strangers. And so I think that's what a lot of these paintings are about, right? They're about asserting who you were. And you can't overstate the impact that Papanya Tula artists has had on the world of Indigenous arts. 
So, I mean, I, I love this, this sight line, right? One yeah. of the things that curators always talk about is they're trying to talk about sight lines. And I think this is a very powerful sight line because here we have this painting called Stars at Night Twinkling by Tutama Japangadi. And this is a really important painting because it's one of the one of the very, very, very first acrylic paintings produced uh, at Papanye. And you can see it's got an odd shape because we think it's the cardboard from inside a card door. And this might seem a kind of humble, simple enough thing, but what I like to think about this stars twinkling is it's, it's kind of like, this is this moment, this pivotal moment when this whole new constellation of art emerges. And then, if you turn, right in your eye is this monstrous, big, gorgeous painting produced in 1975, right? So it's only four years difference. But here we got this amazing story, right? This story of going from whatever scraps you can find to a giant touring exhibition. And you can see in the scale, in the complexity, um, it's, it's, it's a magnificent, um, as a curator, right, there's no labels on the wall yet, but that sightline to me tells a huge, um, wonderful story. And then can you tell me about this one? It's a really different shape. So what we're looking at here, I don't know, it, 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 what would you call that shape? It's, it's like a rectangle, but the top is rounded off, sort of. Yeah, it's People a... People just have to come and see it in person, yeah. I think. Well, it's a really curious, this is a really curious and beautiful painting. And we actually use this one on the cover um, of the um, exhibition catalog. It's a double-sided piece of um, what we'd call fibro board or fibro cement board. It's, 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 literally, it's literally a piece of a wall. And if you look closely at it, it's still got its wallpaper on one side, right? It's still got this, these remnants of floral wallpaper. So you're talking about an artist so determined to paint that they've just found a scrap of board, probably some paints from the school, All right? These would just be kind of commercial paints, but look, mixed in with it is sand, sand. So they're using, you know, using the earth itself. And, you know, this is a mysterious painting. We don't know who did it. We don't know what it depicts but it still speaks so profoundly to that incredible urgency of these men to paint. You know, this, this guy wasn't painting this to sell it. He, he, he was just painting it because, because he had this urge, right, this desire. And it's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. So, you know, we come from this, this, these humble beginnings and we can already see in Carper's big work here that it's becoming huge. It's incredible. This is a short period of time, 71 to 75. But very quickly, Papanya Tula becomes the thing in indigenous arts. And so walking into this room, you know, this is the moment of fame. It's this first huge moment. We got, you know, Michael Nelson, 1988, is invited to create the forecourt mural for Parliament House in Australia. Clifford Possum is given the first you know, museum retrospective of, a, um, of an indigenous artist. They, they give him this big show at the ICA in London. Um, there's an exhibition called Dreamings in New York, which is where John Kluge sees uh, this work for the first time. So you've got this moment of fame, this, this huge moment when everything gets catapulted onto the world stage. And that's a great kind of denouement for, it's a great kind of, 
moment for this exhibition to kind of climax because as many people know not long after there's the the, the crash right the financial crash but until that moment there's a celebration going on here right this is a building bustling growing movement and without you know spoiler alert for the next show i mean what's really important about the next show is that papanya tula by 1995 is in a perilous position and who saves it the women artists but that's that's for later that's for part two right so so it's sort of funny right the women artists are very that well there's only one of them in this exhibition so they're hugely underrepresented but in the next part the story shifts and they become the real main um, main players and Papanyatula has been remarkable at generating income for these remote communities. Papanyatula artists these days, I'm told, brings in over $2 million annually. And they use the profits from their company, the Indigenous directors and shareholders of the company, use the profits to invest in community development. They've built a swimming pool at the community at Wollongaroo. They fund dialysis services at both Kintor and Kirwakura. Papanyatula artists showed that Indigenous people could band together, they could create a company that could support their ambitions to be on country. Right? And that's the most powerful message. It's a message of self-determination. It's a message that says we can hold our culture strong and we can engage with the world, whether that be galleries in New York City or collectors like John Kluge, you know, we can engage with them using our culture, but we can use that to allow us to stay home, to live where we want to live. So that's the right side. The, yeah. Let's call that east side because they're all the eastern artists. They're the, the, from the eastern part of the desert. And then you go west and here... This is the Pintipi room, right? This is the people from the West. These are the people who go home. Papanya is this place where all of these different language groups are brought together. And a, a, a large number of these people are from very, very, very far West in the Western desert. And from the get-go, they don't really fit in at Papanya. And they want their own place. They want to go home. And this fella here, is one of the people really agitating for that. This, his name's Uta Uta Jungala, Uta Uta Jungala. And he is you know, constantly pushing the government administrators at Papanya to give them a place for the Pintipi. He gets his wish in 1974. They give them a sort of a separate community about 20 kilometres west of Papanya called Yayay. And this was one of those early paintings that he painted at Yayay. Right? And as part of this move, they're starting to think, like, how do we get home? And by 1983, they've got communities um, in the far reaches of the Western Desert at places called Wollongaroo or Kintor and at Kiwakura. Kiwakura, I'm told, is the most remote settlement in the world. It's a million miles from anything, but it's the ancestral homelands of these artists and so what we got here is this great story this painting from 1973-74 early days at at Yayai as these artists plan their way home and the art is so important to that story because the art is you know it's 
it's a tool of economic strength, but it's also a tool for these artists to just express who they are. Um, and there's just so much energy in this room, I think, because you can just feel these artists like bristling with that excitement of, of getting home. And so, you know, a lot of these very big canvases were painted at, at, at Wollongaroo or at Kiwakura once these artists had gotten back to their homelands. So when can people come and see this exhibit? So this exhibition is opening on the 24th of June and it's running through until February. And then in March, we'll be opening the second part, this 1996 through to the present. You know, so we're, we're committing to, to, you know, 18 months of Papanyatula in Charlottesville, which is, seems incredible. That's a lot of time. But, you know, this is a big milestone, 50 years. That's a birthday worth celebrating, I think. You can make a reservation to see this exhibit at kluge-ru.org. Well, that does it for this week's edition of Charlottesville Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. My name's Mary Garner-McGee. Our assistant producers this week are Katherine Hansen, Kim Salek, and Sarah Howarth. Our theme song is Kyoja Beat by Myrna Lasko and Jay Pun. This is Charlottesville Soundboard. Visit us online at sevillesoundboard.org. <laughs>